Thank you for joining this sermon podcast from Cornerstone Fellowship in Forest City, North Carolina. We hope that you are blessed and encouraged by today's message. Cornerstone exists to glorify God as we passionately pursue Him and make Him known through worship, discipleship, fellowship, and outreach. Here's today's message. This morning we're going to turn to the book of the Revelation. Revelation chapter 1, and we'll begin our reading in verse 1. Now, I would remind you that on Wednesdays at 6 o'clock, Uh, The men and I are going through the Revelation. We just barely introduced it last week, and I don't know that we'll go through all of it, but my plan right now, I feel that uh, the Lord would have us at least cover the seven churches and the introduction, so we're still in the introduction. We'd love to have you if you'd like to come and be a part of that, and uh, that's at 6 o'clock on Uh, Wednesday, so um, we'd love to see you. We're going to begin in verse 1, and I know it may be irritating some, but I'm going to stop in a few spots and talk about the verses as we read them. The first sentence, the revelation of Jesus Christ. The word revelation is the word in the Greek, apocalypsis. Uh, Calypso means I cover, and apo means from, so it means to uncover, to take a covering away from something, as if you had uh, a great painting or something famous, and the crowd is gathered, and they can't yet see it, But the veil is pulled away, and they're able to see things that they know have been going on, but they've not actually been able to look at it. That's what the revelation actually means. And notice, it is the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his bondservants the things which must soon Take place. He sent and communicated it by his angel. So he's not speaking directly to John. He has a messenger. Uh, Angelos means messenger, and he is speaking that through his servant, the messenger to his servant or bondservant, John. Now I just want to say this. The language is different in all of that, but let's make sure before we even read another verse that we at least get on track with what this book is about. The Jews would write with symbolism. They call it apocalyptic literature. They do it quite often, and there's lots of them that we still have copies of today. But when the Jews wrote an apocalypse, it was always about how the Jewish nation one day uh, would overthrow everybody and they would rule the world. And you'll notice uh, that even Jesus' disciples, even right before he ascended into heaven, they were still asking about that coming kingdom. And you remember they even had arguments during their ministry with him about where they would get to sit in this coming kingdom. They had so misunderstood what all of this was about. 
But this is an apocalypse about Jesus Christ and his victory. He is the one that overcomes. So it's not about nationalism. It's, it's not about us Christians rising up. It is about the victory that has been won through Jesus Christ. Verse 2, who testified to the Word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the word of the prophecy. In the early church, they would have readers who would just read the word. And I know for us, just to think about, boy, somebody's just going to stand and read, that would bore us to death. But you have to remember, for these people to hear the Word of God, it didn't matter if it was bland, if it was flat. It didn't have to be exciting. You needed no smoke or lights. You just needed to read the Word of God. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it, for the time is near. Don't forget that. We treat this book sometime as if there was no need to even read this book until, what, 1948, that's when Israel became a nation, or maybe Y2K or something like that. We have, we, we start out with our own template that we lay on the Revelation, and we're looking for our eschatological view the whole time. And eschatology means the study of the end time. So if you're premillennial, amillennial, postmillennial, or whatever you might be, if you're not careful, you just start out looking for yourself in there. It's sort of like you just got your annual or your uh, whatever they call them now, the, the picture book from high school, and you open it up and you're just flipping wide open. And where are you headed? You want to see your picture and you want to find yourself in the book. Well, this is not a book about us. It's not a book to satisfy our curiosity about what will happen in the end. It is a book about Jesus Christ. John to the seven churches that are in Asia, verse 4 Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. John will never use the term Holy Spirit anywhere in the book. When he talks about the Spirit of God, he uses the number seven, which means perfection or divine perfection. So when he says the seven spirits of God, he is talking about the Holy Spirit. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood. And he has made us to be a kingdom, priest to his God and Father. To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. John had to do a little worshiping right there just 
just bear with him, okay? He's dealing with some awesome truth. He had to give some glory to God. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him. Even those who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. So it is to be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and was and who is to come, the Almighty. And I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation, he is not talking about a period of time that's coming up that's margined off exactly by a certain amount of years here. Thylipsis is a word used throughout the New Testament to talk about difficulty and persecution, and sometimes they would translate it the tribulation. And kingdom and perseverance, I'm a partaker in all of that, which are in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because, the word of, because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Now, I'll pause again. If I'm not on your nerves yet, just wait. I'll get there. You remember James and John were the two that asked Jesus, can we sit in the chief seats when we get into the kingdom that is coming? Jesus said, yeah, you can sit there, but you got to understand you also have to drink from the cup that I drink from, and are you willing to do that? And it's interesting that James would be the first one to die, and here we are with his brother John. He will be the last, but he's about to sip of the same cup as his Lord and Savior. He says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. And I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet saying, write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches. What? Which seven? Well, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. This book is addressed to them. And then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man, clothed in a robe, reaching to the feet and girded across his chest with a golden sash. His head and his hair were white, like white wool, like snow. And his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze when it has been made to glow in a furnace. And his voice was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand he held the seven stars. And out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in its strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. And he placed his right hand on me, saying, Do not be afraid. I am the first, and I am the last, and the living one. And I was dead. Don't forget that. 
Among so many more progressive liberal churches nowadays, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is kind of fair game. Believe it if you want to, but if not, just take it to mean something figuratively like, you know, we, we, we are dead, but, but we can have a life if we live like Jesus. And whether he actually rose from the dead or not really doesn't matter. I can tell you it matters, and he makes a point here, and I was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys. I have the keys of death and of hell or Hades or the grave. Therefore, write the things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which will take place after these things. And as for the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, he said, the seven stars are the angels, are the messengers, are the preachers of the seven churches. So you call me whatever you like. He calls me an angel. And Loretta does. And the seven lampstands are the seven Churches, God bless the reading of your word. This is a popular book for those who are looking for a good, clear understanding of the Antichrist. It amazes people most of the time, though, to learn that the word Antichrist never occurs anywhere in this book. Because this is not a book about the Antichrist. This is a book about Jesus Christ. And there will be some others that come along. And yes, he addresses those who will defy God. But in 1 John and 2 John, the only place in the New Testament where the word Antichrist ever occurs, and it occurs there with a warning, quit saying that first the Antichrist must come, and then the Lord will come back. I don't know how he could have got more plain than that. John says, I tell you, many, many antichrists have already come. So I'm not telling you that he's not going to play a role in the end time. I am trying really hard, and I hope you understand that, to help us to get back to the real meaning of the book of the Revelation. Because unless we are willing to discipline ourselves to learn and understand what it meant to the early church to whom it was addressed, then we will always fail in our uh, attempts to try to understand what it might mean for us and our future. So we're going to take it slowly. And I, I know you're thinking, man, you read a lot of Scripture if you preach all of that, it'll, it'll be dark. Well, we've got an extra hour. We may not finish it. it it's okay. I, I'm, I'm going to just go ahead and relieve myself of that burden. Because unless the Lord comes back, 
or he calls me home, we'll finish it next week. Because if he comes back, it won't matter anyway. There are three questions I want to address, though, before we begin our study of the text. First of all, why was the book written to begin with? If you look at the Roman emperor situation, it's going to play a big role in exactly why this book was written and to whom it was written. If you start out with Tiberius and Augusta and Caligula, and then after uh, Caligula, Claudius, and after Claudius you had Nero, and then Nero kills himself in 68, I believe it is, and then in the next year they have three emperors, Galba, Otho, and Vitellius, and it, they, all three of them were losers. It's like in the Bible, stooges always come in threes. Is that not amazing? But they couldn't rule anything. Finally, Vespasian comes to the throne after him, Titus. And then our last emperor during the New Testament period is going to be Domitian. Domitian did something that the emperors before him had pretty much ignored. Because the Roman Empire believed that the emperor was deified, that he was a god. They even believed the Roman Empire was a god. It was a female goddess named Roma. But they also believed that the emperors themselves were gods. And so it was a law that a lot of them had not imposed, but Domitian revives it, that said that if you're part of the Roman Empire or live within its territory, then once a year you have to burn a piece of incense and declare that Caesar is God. Now, it wasn't a real long ceremony, and you only had to do it once a year, and you got a certification, actually. You would have a, have a paper that said that you had worshipped Caesar. They took it that seriously. They didn't much care who you worshipped after that, but Domitian has revived emperor worship, and he wants these people, all of them, to at least once a year declare that Caesar is God. It reminds me a lot of our world. We have a lot of foolishness that goes on in our world today, and you see it happening more and more. They are demanding demanding that the church not just tolerate it, but that the church also validate it. As a matter of fact, we have men that want to marry men, but they don't want to just do that. They want to do it in the church. And they want to make it a law that pastors like myself have to perform the wedding. If you want to be married and call yourself a couple or whatever, why not just do that and leave the church alone? But it is the same mindset that the emperor had. What good did it do him for Christians to burn incense and declare him God when they didn't believe it? But it was a, it was a sign of his importance, his authority, that he could make everybody validate him as a deified emperor. We are seeing 
a lot of that in our world today. Polycarp, when he, he was one of the early church pastors, he was burned alive because he refused to say that Caesar was emperor. And the story goes that Polycarp was such a nice and well-liked man that the magistrates who walked him to the, the pit of fire to burn him alive, that he, they actually tried to talk him into doing it. They said, just, just, just do it, and it's not a big deal. Because they really liked Polycarp. But he says, these 86 years I've served God, and he has never failed or denied me, and I will die before I fail or deny him. Well, that's a long ways from yesterday when I looked at the weather and saw that it would be cold and rainy, and then with the change of time, I thought, oh, man, the crowd may be down, but you're here, and I'm glad. But look how far we've come. We've come from walking into the flame. And as a matter of fact, it says, history tells us that when they went to tie his hands to the pole, he refused and said, I'll stand in the flames. No need to tie me. And they burned him alive. This book is written because they are living in torment. The early church has finally caught the, the, the anger of the Roman Empire. For a long time, the Roman Empire looked at Christians as if they were an offshoot of Judaism. And Judaism was a legal religion. They were religio uh, licite. If you were a, a legitimate religion, if you weren't, you were called a religio illicite. And so they thought the Christians were part of Judaism. But guess who told on them? It was the Jews who told on them. The Jews went to the Romans and said, one, these guys are atheists. And where did they get that? Well, they don't want to worship the emperor. Well, that makes them atheists. And they also only have one God, but then they are drinking his blood and eating his flesh so they're cannibals, and cannibalism was also worthy of death in the Roman Empire. So now the church, and you notice through Acts and, and the early, uh, even in the Gospels, the, the Romans gave the Christians very uh, little hardship. But boy, I can tell you, things have turned, and they have turned quickly. But here's what's most important. If you read the Revelation, you won't hear God addressing a whole lot going on with Rome. He starts out addressing with what's going on inside his church. He doesn't say, Ephesus, boy, you really got a problem because the Romans that live near you are really mean. Doesn't mention them. When he writes to the church at Ephesus and the very next chapter, he says, you have lost your first love. That passion that you had for me at one time, you no longer have it. When he wrote to Smyrna, you're not going to believe this, but they had people in the church that weren't believers. You know, in our world today, we're like, invite the lost to church and, and, and they'll get saved. 
Church is not for lost people. And I'm not saying don't invite them. Don't, don't, don't do that. I'm not saying don't invite them, but I'm telling you that's not how they're going to get saved. The way they're going to get saved is for us to go to them. God never said for the world to go to church, but he told us plainly in the Great Commission that we were to go to the world. When he writes to Smyrna, he says, you have people in your church that are unbelievers mixing up, mixed among you, and, and, and they're not of uh, the family of God. Pergamum, they had the doctrine of compromise, or Balaam, it's called there. Thyatira, they had their very own resident feminazi. God called her Jezebel. She was leading the people astray, and she had that wicked, stern, mean spirit that, that was difficult to deal with. And it wasn't that she was just there. Here was God's problem. His problem was that this woman that he named Jezebel. Now, the original Jezebel's dead, okay? So it's not her. But he says, you got a woman in the church named Jezebel. That's not my problem. My problem is you tolerate her. Maybe Thyatira caught on to this new thing going on in our world today that a sign of being like Jesus is you tolerate heathens and heathen behavior and embrace it and authenticate it, and then the liberals will think you are being like Jesus. Jesus says, don't make me come down there, Thyatira. You better do something with that woman. That's a paraphrase. Sardis, he had a great reputation as a church, but he said, it's wrong. He said, you have a reputation that you're alive. Probably lots of great things going on, but he says, spiritually, you are dead. Philadelphia, you have an open door in front of you. This is the only church that he didn't hit with a harsh critique. He says, but I'm telling you, Philadelphia, I have set an open door in front of you. You have opportunities that a lot of churches do not have. I will tell you this, I often think of Cornerstone when I think of the Church of Philadelphia, and I, I'm not saying that we don't have problems like all of the other churches uh, in the seven had as well, but I think of Cornerstone when I think of we have an open door in front of us. We have opportunities that a lot of churches do not have and probably never again will ever have. And what do I mean by that? Well, you, you know that family that everybody has to please? And if that family's not happy, nobody's happy. That family don't go here. You know that tree that Grandpa planted years ago and it's rotting and limbs falling on the building and it's already killed two or three youngins. And, but you can't cut it down because even though grandpa's dead, so is the church. And they're revering him and there's people that will just about half kill you if you even mention sawing that old dead tree down. We don't have that tree here. You love to show up one day and the shrubbery be gone. We don't care. 
We don't. If we outgrow this place and need a bigger place and, and, and we don't have a, enough room here, we'll move somewhere else. There's nothing sacred or holy about this place unless the Spirit of God is in God's people and we're gathered here in His name to worship Him. Other than that, it's nothing but a building. Amen. And that's what a lot of churches have. Nothing but a building. I shared with the men Wednesday night. I said in the pagan empire that Constantine ruled before he allowed the church to come out of hiding and legalized it as a religion around the pagan temples as close as they could get to the pagan temples. When their loved ones died, they would bury them there. That's a pagan practice. Who in the world would follow after a pagan practice of thinking we need to bury all our dead people right around the, the temple or the shrine? Are you, you got me? Huh? Are you with me? People ask me sometimes, do y'all have a cemetery? I tell them, yes, we do. The only thing we've put in it so far is deer, some coyotes, Things like that. It's a big gully down here. The church got in the business of burying people for the wrong reason, and I'm going to tell you, it's haunted them ever since. Haunted them ever since. Laodicea, he tells them, you're lukewarm. We'll move on, but it's not the Romans that need a reminder of who Jesus is. It's his church. We need to remember that. Also, not only did he tell them that you got, you, you got to hear this, church. You notice the way that he wrote it, and that's why it was written the way it was. That's our second question. Why is it written in all of this symbolism and all of this weird language? Why is it written that way? Well, apocalyptic literature does use a lot of things that to describe, well, it was like this or like that. We take a lot of things literally in Revelation that actually John says it was like this or like that. 67 times, I believe it is, he uses the word like in the book. He says his hair was white like white wool and his eyes were like fire and his voice when he spoke, it was like the sound of many waters. Why in the world would you write that way? Well, the reason was the same reason we have a lot of legal terms and biological terms and medical terms that are still in Latin. Latin's a dead language. It's not going to change. We add words to the English language every year, and words in the English language change from time to time. But in a dead language, uh, it will always remain the same. And so when you write in apocalyptic literature, instead of using words that might change from culture to culture or might change over time, you use a word like fire. Fire is fire. 
It's been hot ever since we've ever seen it. It consumes whatever it gets a hold of. So when you want to describe the eyes of God just absolutely burning a hole through whatever they look, through all of our, uh, uh, all of our coverings and excuses and, and the fig leaves we try to hide our sin with, if you want to describe the eyes of God and how they just set it ablaze and consume it, then you use fire. His hair was white as snow. I'm pretty old, and ever since I can remember, snow's been white. It's been white. I, I don't know, maybe some of those big polluted cities that may have changed color some. But that's why they write, that's why apocalyptic literature was, was one of the reasons that it was so important. And, and let me skip to this. I'm going to tell you, it's so important that we get this. There's an ominous declaration, I call it. I'm going to read you a verse from Daniel chapter 12. He prophesied. In Jan Daniel chapter 12, verse 4. But as for you, Daniel, conceal these words and seal up the book until the end of time. I've shown you some things, Daniel. You know some things about the end of time that nobody knows. Seal up those words. Don't speak them. Don't preach them. Don't let anybody see them. Many will go back and forth, and knowledge will increase, but they will never know what I told you. And then in verse 10, he says, many will be purged. And he says, as things go along, some will be purified and refined. But listen to this. He tells Daniel in verse 10, but the wicked will act wickedly. They're just going to do it. And none of the wicked will understand. Once these words are revealed, they're never going to get it. They're going to argue with it until the day they die. But those who have insight will understand. Now, I want to read a verse, two verses from Revelation 22. And he said to me, talking to John, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. And let the one who does wrong still do wrong. And the one who is filthy, let him stay filthy. And let the one who is righteous still practice righteousness. And the one who is holy still keep himself holy. In other words, you're going to have some that are going to be filthy and ungodly and unrighteous and wicked. And he says, leave them alone. Let them stay that way. Doesn't mean we don't try to win them to Christ or tell them about Jesus. But man, you know, one of the things that my son has to remind me of from time to time, because boy, he reads me like a book and he can tell when I'm despondent or I'm down or I'm depressed about something and, and he knows it probably has to do with somebody that's really broken my heart, somebody I had a lot of faith in and, and now they're gone or whatever. One of the things my son tells me from time to time, Daddy, you have to stop treating lost people as if they know the Lord. They just flat don't. 
and they're going to stay like they are. Why it's written about whom it's written is our third question. We, asked, we answered about why and the style of it. Third question is, is about whom was it written, and we'll look at this one quickly. But it was written to reintroduce God's people to exactly who Jesus Christ is. Who Jesus is. Do you know what the fastest growing religion in the world is today? If you look it up, you'll discover it's Islam probably still. The stats are a little wishy-washy, but Islam is... Uh, set to grow in the next uh, few years, they should be about 30% of the entire world population. Christians will be about 31%. It'll be the first time it's been that close in a long time. And usually when they count these stats, they're counting Catholics and anything that's close to Christianity. But that's still not the fastest growing religion in our world. Fastest growing religion in our world is the religion of me. Me? Oh, if you serve the religion of me, you can decide. Well, Jesus is one way to God. There are plenty others. Oprah Winfrey, that's the religion of Oprah. <laughs> oh, plenty ways to God. Lots of paths going up the mountain, but they all come out in the same place. Oh, we're going to have a big group hug us and the Hindus and the Buddhists. The Buddhists are going to really be shook because they don't even believe in a God. It's amazing. But if you serve self, you get to decide all these things. Oh, you they some passages of Scripture... That's Psalm 23, Lord have mercy. I bet people have that thing embroidered in the kitchen and hanging up, and it just means the world to them. It's like Vody Bauckham recently said, everybody loves Jesus until they find out really who he is. Because he is the only way to have a relationship with God. And God will close his word to us with a whole book about who Jesus is. Well, let's take a look at a, one or two of these. Oh, it's just 9.30. At 10.30. I hadn't reset my clock. But let's look at a couple of them. I promise, I'll, I'll do you like Elizabeth Taylor did her husband's. I promise I won't keep you long. Jesus reminds us of his salvation, first of all. Verse 5, he has released us from our sins. If we're born again children of God, we have been released from our sins. And I love the word in the Greek is loosed. We have been loosed from our sins. And man, that's such a, such a powerful concept to, to just think about. These poor people here, 
that to whom John is writing, they're going to live without a lot of the luxuries of life, and, and they're going to, uh, many of them are going to die, and many of them will be crucified themselves and burned alive, and they will do without so many things because of their faith. But man, I want to tell you, their eternity is set because they have been forgiven of their sin. And I can tell you right now, there is nothing in the world more precious than to know that your sins are forgiven. If he never cures your cancer, if he never uh, uh, pays those bills off, if, if, if he never helps you get that new car or whatever it is in life you're looking for, if, what, if you never meet the right man or right woman or, or whatever the, all of that's about, I can just tell you this. If you have a relationship with God through his son, Jesus Christ, and you trusted in him for the forgiveness of your sins, if he has forgiven your sins, that's the most precious thing in the world. If you had all of the other things and didn't have that, if a man gains the whole world, Jesus said, but loses his soul, he has nothing. He has nothing, nothing more important than that. The forgiveness of sin, and that's what we're about, church. He starts out by reminding us that we are about the gospel, which is the power of God for salvation. That's what we're about. We're not the Red Cross. We're not the Salvation Army. We're not yoke fellow. It doesn't mean we don't care about those who are in need. We do. We have, and we always will. As a matter of fact, uh, I'm, I'm just about this close to telling the next person tells me, well, you know, I think the church ought to be about caring about the needy. I'll be looking for you at the next firewood cutting. I didn't see you yesterday. We do those things. But the only reason we take people firewood is so we can tell them about Jesus. Because it's free. We cut it, we split it, we bring it to you, we unload it. it what's so crazy about our world, you know, we used to have people that would steal it. They would steal firewood. When if they had just called us and asked for some, we'd have brought it to them. So I guess some people had rather steal it even if they have to load it themselves. But why do we do that? Because we want people to wonder, why in the world these people that don't even know who I am care enough to bring me wood and then call back later to make sure that I was okay for the winter? We want them to know why we do that. It's because of Jesus Christ and what he's done in our life and what he can do in their life. And that's more important than heat. More important than heat being freed from our sins. I'm a hunter and a fisherman and all of those things. And I don't know what it is. It sounds oxymoronic, I guess. <clears throat> but man, I'll do anything to help an animal in distress. I remember up at Rich and Jenny's one time, I was clearing out a little food plot way up on top of the mountain, that little one up there. And there was a little bird nest in a pine tree. Oh, I don't know about this tall. And I was on a bulldozer. And I kept going around and around that pine tree. And I let those little birds hatch. And then I killed I don't know how many deer in that same spot. God blessed 
because I let them birds live. I, I see videos sometimes of animals that get tangled up deer or some of the worst they get in fences sometimes bucks will fight and they get tangled together you've seen them before and 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 no matter how long the video is you always wait till the end don't you because you did the best part is when you finally get that deer out of that fence or those bucks separated or whatever it is sometimes an elk i saw one the other day that got pride in between a couple of trees and couldn't get out and people had to help him. I've seen him fall through the ice. I saw some caribou the other day that got rescued. We always watch it to the end because it is just so wonderful to watch that animal that almost died set free. They stumble and stagger around a little bit and then they hop on off in the woods and it's usually hunters that help them and then of course they come back the next year and kill them. But they help them. I remember fishing at Rich and Jenny's one time. Chase was and I were in the boat, and we heard the water splash and turned around, and a little fawn had fallen in the lake. Knew its mama was there somewhere, but I couldn't see her. We helped that little fawn out of the lake. It was so awesome when that little fella got out, man, almost drowned, walked and stumbled. Started calling its mama. When I think of being set free from my sins, man, it's, it's at least like that. Imminent death could not help myself. So tangled up in life and my own problems till I had no hope. And Jesus Christ loosed me. He loosed me. One more. His salvation. He says, I want to also remind you of my sacrifice. And the second part of verse 5, and we'll close with this one. He saved us by his blood. By his blood. I saw a sign the other day that is true in some part, but it talked about no matter how high prices get in this economy, Salvation is still free. I don't know about that. It was a free gift of grace to us, but somebody paid for it. Somebody paid for it, and he paid for it with his blood. He paid for it with his blood. Man, it... uh, It cost Jesus Christ his life. Now, being a Christian will cost me mine. I have to die to self, but I had no hope until Jesus Christ himself came to this earth. And he didn't just say, okay, I'm God. I can do whatever I want to do, so, hey, I'm going to just make everybody okay. that's, That's the Hollywood version of a Savior, okay? God has to be true to his nature, And he said only death can pay for sin. So he came and he died for our sins. That's why he can say in 1 John that I'm not only faithful to forgive you of your sins, I am justified to forgive you of your sins. I am not winking at them, sweeping them under the rug. No, I am totally justified. 
I am true to my nature of a, of a holy God when I forgive Mike Snellgrove's sorry, sinful soul because I paid the price he could not pay. It's sort of like getting married. You know, you can get married for nothing, but now being married is what's going to cost you. Being married's high, is it not? I mean, not to you, Loretta, but I mean to some people, you know, you know what I mean. Becoming a Christian, Jesus paid for that. He says, do you want to be a Christian? He says, well, uh, take up your cross and follow me. And he says, take it up daily. And every day I have to die to self. I have to die to self. Oh, if you come on Wednesday night, we'll get down in the weeds about it all. But I just rejoice this week. I love to do word studies of passages in the original language before I preach them. And when it says that, he loosed us. That is an aorist participle, and it, it means it happened. It happened all at one time. It's done. It's over. Are, are you one of those that says, boy, I hope I make it to heaven? I don't. I know I'm going. I don't deserve to go, but my sins are forgiven. That was done all at once. And then when he says in the same verse 5, I believe it was, and he loves us. Ah, oh, that's a perfect participle. Don't get caught up in all of that. That's English, and you probably slept to it. But in the Greek, that means I loosed you all at once, and it was over. I love you every single day day of your life, and I will never, ever, ever stop. I am loosed and loved. Man, I should have titled a sermon that. I'm loosed and loved. I hope you'll come back next week. We'll finish taking a look at chapter 1. But church, I want to tell you, I know. I, I may not live to see a lot of it. And I, I, hope I, I hope I live a long time. But our world is, it's beginning to make demands on the church. Coaches that pray with their kids on their teams or sports teams, a lot of them are getting in trouble for it. I'm so proud of men like Rich Cox. The day they go in there to tell him he can't do it, I, I'm going up there because I, I won't see that. But it's going to get tougher. Oh. They're tired of guys like me. It's hate. What I, I, you realize there's some things I said today 
or legally hate speech. I, I could go to jail for it. And I'm not going to say them to just get on somebody's nerves, but when it comes to standing for the truth, I'm going to say them, I don't care what they do to me. What are they going to do, shoot me? I already did that. I tell them to get in line. <laughs> I'm not going to stop. I can't. It's the only thing left in this world that means anything. The truth of God. It's the only hope for our families, our children. Relationship with Him. This whole world is, look at it. The United States is supposedly ran by the smartest and brightest people on earth. Do I need to even finish that? Whew. Lord, help us. If that's the best and brightest, we're in trouble, but we know it. God told Daniel, seal up the words. One day I'm going to let John speak them. The wicked are going to be wicked. For the righteous, remember who made you righteous. Remember what it cost you, that relationship with him. Let's pray. Our Father, we come to you right now, and I ask you, God, help us. Help us, Lord, to take a look at ourselves as a church, God. Lord, sometimes we, we read books like the Revelation and God, it excites us to hear what you're going to do to the enemies of the church. But God, you're addressing problems that are within the church. I pray, God, we would look at those. I pray we'd look at our own hearts and lives and, and look at the areas, God, where we're not walking with you like we need to, God. Lord, we have an open door before us, but are we going to use it? Are we, are we going to go on to the next level, God? Are we brave enough to step out on faith and, and go through that door, not knowing where it may lead, but knowing you will lead us, God? I pray, God, you'd help us. And I pray for that dear soul that's sitting here today, Lord. Maybe they've put their faith and their trust in you, but... Satan's worried them to death. Maybe they'll lose it. Maybe, maybe they won't make it. I pray, God, that you'd comfort them, Lord, with your words. That it's not dependent upon them. But they're in your hands if they've trusted you, Lord. And I pray, God, for those that may be suffering from cancer or Lord, they may be looking at financial trouble or disaster even, or maybe there are other issues in their life that plague them. God, I pray that you would assure them today with those precious words that you will have the final say. You are the Alpha. You are the Omega. You're the beginning. You are the end. And even if something takes us out of this world, if we know you as our Savior, Lord, that we will be with you. Thank you for that assurance, God. Help us now as we march through that door, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.
you for joining us today. If you have any questions or would like to know more about Cornerstone, please visit our website at ServantsWay.com or email us at office at ServantsWay.com. Cornerstone Fellowship is located at 1186 Hudlow Road, Forest City, North Carolina. Please join us again next week.